Welcome to the Polygamer Podcast, where gaming is for everyone. Join us as we expand the boundaries of the gaming community. I'm your host, Ken Gagney. This week on Polygamer. The important thing about video games is that the way to play them is to live in, in the moment. And that has been how I've dealt with multiple sclerosis, is I absolutely live in the moment. That's Christian Donlin, associate editor for Eurogamer.net, one of the leading video game websites for the European gaming community. Christian represents the first time the Polygamer podcast has featured somebody from outside the United States borders. I apologize it's taken us so long to get that level of diversity on this show. I mean, we are turning a year old this month. you think we would have gone there by now. So in this episode, Christian and I spent about a half an hour talking about what the European gaming scene is like. He and I are about the same age, so did we grow up playing the same games or completely different platforms? Also, since we're both writers, we talk about his history of freelancing and writing for Edge Magazine, which was known here in the United States as Next Generation Magazine, and how he transitioned into full-time work at Eurogamer. However, it is not Christian's Europeanness that made me want to talk to him on the Polygamer podcast. Thanks to a recent article by Chris Scullion, I just this summer discovered an article that Christian wrote last November, talking about how video games taught him the life skills he needed to cope with his recent diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. As Christian and I discuss in this episode, it's rare for people to know exactly what MS is unless they have a reason to, so let me give you a little bit of background. First, a metaphor. Think of a desk lamp. It draws its electricity from a wall outlet across copper wires that are bound in plastic. That allows you to touch the power cord without getting shocked and also ensures that the electricity gets from the wall outlet to the lamp without shooting all over the place and getting lost in transit. Well, the human nervous system is very much the same. Instead of copper wires, we have nerves. And instead of plastic, our nerves are coated in a sheath of a fatty protein known as myelin. In patients with multiple sclerosis, the body's own autoimmune system begins attacking that myelin sheath and degrading the coating around the nerves. This diminishes the body's ability to send and receive signals. So, for example, when the brain sends a signal to a limb... If that signal gets lost en route, then you may lose fine motor control and your body won't respond the way you're telling it to. And unlike a lamp, the nervous system works both ways. The limbs send signals back to the brain, and when that signal gets lost, you lose sensation. So you may not be able to feel your fingers or toes, or they may feel tingly or numb. It is a degenerative disorder, which means it gets worse over time, but it is not fatal. People do not die from multiple sclerosis. They may die from complications that arise due to MS, but MS itself is not terminal. It affects primarily women, but when it affects men, it can often affect them harder than it does women. It affects primarily Caucasians, and people can be diagnosed usually around ages 35 to 45, though it can go anywhere from teenager to older. Early symptoms often include optic neuritis, which can be blurred or double vision, or vertigo or loss of balance. What causes multiple sclerosis? Well, if we knew that, we'd be a lot closer to a cure. There is no known one factor or variable that causes multiple sclerosis. Is it genetic? We don't think so, but children of people with MS may be 10 times likelier to have MS themselves. I know a family where three out of five sisters have MS. Does that mean it's genetic, or does that mean they all grew up drinking the same water? We don't know. Studies continue to figure out what the common factors are. Unfortunately, since there is no known cause, there's also not yet a cure. However, there are multiple treatments, about a dozen, ranging from injections to infusions to, as of two years ago, oral pills. Unfortunately, I did not have to do any research to be able to tell you all these things about multiple sclerosis. My mom was diagnosed with MS 25 years ago in 1990. I was 11, and she was 45. 
She was fortunate that she got on medication right away, of which there were not many options back then. And as a result of that treatment, although she does see a neurologist several times a year and does give herself injections regularly, she has remained ambulatory, which means she is able to walk unassisted. She does experience some loss of balance, a lot of fatigue, and some occasional memory lapses, but these are often symptoms you experience getting older anyway. It just happens to be a little bit worse for her. I have been volunteering with the National Multiple Sclerosis Society Greater New England Chapter here in the United States since 2005, and for one year I even hosted a weekly interview-based podcast all about multiple sclerosis, where I chatted with people who have MS or whose lives have been affected by MS. You can still find that podcast at challengetalk.org. So while interviewing people whose lives have been affected by MS is not anything new to me, Christian marks the first time that I have intersected that with video games, which is another big component of my life. So between this and last month's interview with my father, Polygamer has been hitting pretty close to home lately. And I hope that rather than that being a selfish choice, it marks a significant investment that I have in this show and just how important it is to discuss these topics and all the different ways video games impact our lives in powerful ways, as you'll hear from Christian. I hope you enjoy this show, and as always, you can find links in the show notes at polygamer.net. This includes all the articles that Christian references, such as the one that led me to him in the first place, as well as one about multiple sclerosis for the New Statesman, and links for resources to find out more about multiple sclerosis, whether you live in the USA or the UK. If you or someone you know or love has MS, or if you have questions about the condition, or you want to help, please feel free to drop me a line at feedback at polygamer.net or tweet me at GameBits. Thanks so much for listening. Today I'm very fortunate to be joined by associate editor of Eurogamer, Mr. Christian Donlin. Hello, Christian. Hello. Hi. Do you prefer Christian or Chris? Uh, do you know what? Um, everyone in the real world calls me Donlin, but I will answer to anything. Christian or Chris. Chris is fine. Chris is absolutely fine. I'll call you Chris or Donlin. <laughs> you'll, you'll never know it's one of those things isn't it it's where you have a it's not a nickname because it's actually my own name but it's just it, it, you never choose what people call you it kind of it evolves naturally and then you can't you have no say in the matter so uh so yeah i, I live with i live with donlan but i'm happy to answer to anything no i can appreciate that there are two pronunciations of my last name and i use both based on which context i'm in so i never really know where i am until i hear somebody say my name is it is is it French originally? Yes. Is it French for win? Yes. Oh wow! What a wonderful that is a wonderfully lucky name to have. I think the original spelling of my last name generations ago was the verb to win, but then my grandfather changed it to the noun winner. Right. That's wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he got to the point where he felt like, okay, we 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 have one now. We're winners. <laughs> this, this has happened. Let's yes. see. <laughs> Let's acknowledge that and move on. That's a wonder. What a wonderful, optimistic, and sort of uh, that's that's a lovely ear. Yeah, it's a good name. I'm a fan. <laughs> but oh, enough definitely. about me. Let's talk about you, sir. <laughs> so I have two podcasts. The other one, Indie Cider, is where I interview independent game developers, and I've interviewed game developers all around the world: England, France, Australia. They're everywhere. However, I think that on this podcast, Polygamer, you represent the first time I've interviewed somebody from Europe. So hello. Hello. How are you doing? So I'm curious a little bit to know, I mean, you and I are of roughly similar ages, but we grew up in very different parts of the world. And so I'm curious to know, what exactly is the gaming scene like in over there? Like, did you grow up playing all the same games I did? Yeah, like, yeah, yes and no. So I would say now the gaming scenes are very similar. 
very similar. So in 2015, it is 2015, isn't it? I need, I need to check occasionally. Yeah, in 2015, we are all, we, it feels like we are all playing the same games everywhere in the world, which is great because the games we're playing are wonderful. But back in um, the 80s, for example, I think we were playing very different games. So um, the, the personal computer, the home computer was huge in, in England particularly. So stuff like the Spectrum, uh, the Commodore 64, which was big in the States as well, but was joined by stuff like the Spectrum. And I remember as a kid playing games which were just so unmistakably English. Um, I should point out I'm American as well. My family moved over here in the early 80s. And so I was able to have that slight that thing you have when you're in a new country where you can detect the Englishness, which maybe English people can't detect as, as clearly, if that makes sense. Now, wait a minute. If you're American, then I'm going to have to insist you record this podcast with an American accent. <laughs> can you do that for me? I can't do it anymore. I can't do it. <laughs> You've lost it. My, my mother's English and my, my dad's American. And when we moved over here, my, my mother's family were quite... Um, concerned that people would think we were American, which is ridiculous because we are. All they would be thinking is the truth. <laughs> but uh, she want, they wanted us to have an English accent. So we, I mean, I was very young at the time, but we ended up just kind of picking up the accent through osmosis. So my, my dad has a very American accent, but the rest of us, the rest of us sound like this. <laughs> You've blended in. Yes, we've been, we've been assimilated into the English Borg or whatever. <laughs> so about the time you moved over to England, I was growing up playing my games on the Apple II computer, and you had a Spectrum ZX? Yeah, so we actually had a, a Commodore 64, but the people around, like, we knew lots of people who had uh, Spectrum ZXs and stuff like that. And, and the English games particularly, which I imagine you didn't get over there, would be um, Manic Miner. Is that, that's like a legendary English game. Have you heard of that? I've heard of it because there's the there's this music video all about the British games that you grew up with, like BBC Micro stuff, and yes. so they mentioned Jetpack and Manic Miner and all these others, but I, I didn't grow up with those. In fact, we've just had an, a, a general election over here, and um, Ed Miliband, who lost, um, spoke very lovingly during the general election, the run up to it, where politicians have to pretend to be human beings. He spoke very lovingly about his youth playing Manic Miner. It was made by a very idiosyncratic designer called Matthew Smith, or Matt Smith, as he was known. And he made Manic Miner, and then he made the sequel, Jet Set Willy, which is an extraordinary, just an extraordinary game. As a child, this was a... You know you have those games when you're the children, which are less a video game and more just like a, a world that you can kind of imagine and dream about, the possibilities. Those games were so mysterious because they were kind of broken and buggy and, and they worked in such strange ways. But the, the, those games in particular seemed really expansive in my imagination. And then, of course, we had Elite. Did you have Elite? Was Elite? I gather Elite was not huge in the States. Elite came out for the Apple II, and I think there is a new version of it called Elite Dangerous that just came out. That's right. Uh, the, the, the new version is, I mean, is, is spectacular, but I wondered whether that is, in America, it's a harder sell because you don't have... Elite is such a Brit-soft a British software kind of um, success story. And it sort of spoke to kind of, it's a very right-wing ethos elite is expressing. And I mean, you, you had Reagan, but Thatcher was, was the epitome of the elite mentality when it came out. And I think Braben was 
David Braben, the designer, was was like a young conservative sort of figure. So it just it felt it was bound up in Britishness in such an extraordinary, deep and complex way. And I think one of your games, Jetpack, got a sequel that was released for the Nintendo Solar Jetman. Yes, that's right. Yes. Now, my friend had Jetpack and I loved it, but I was very bad at it. And I have since forgotten everything about it other than I've forgotten everything about it other than that I was bad at it. <laughs> oh, Solar Jetman was one of those games that just it was such a big world. And what little lore they gave you in the game or in the instruction manual was enough. And it was just there was so much to do and see. And I remember when I'd bring that game home, everything else would just disappear. Yeah, I mean, there was another one. Like, there's an American game I loved called um, Impossible Mission. Yes, I think I remember that. A Commodore, for me, it's the defining Commodore 64 uh, game. And one of the first things I did when I, was, when I started writing about games is you start going back through, almost like you work through your early gaming memories again because you're turning all of this into articles. And that's, in, in a sense, sort of turning. You're monetizing your early gaming memories. But uh, tracking down the designer of Impossible Mission, and he is a, a very reclusive guy, tracking him down and getting the story on that game I'd played as a kid was a really wonderful moment. That was a game where you're a spy and you're in this secret base and uh, sort of riding up and down in elevators. And it's, inc- it's incredibly difficult. And it really scared me as a child. But uh, it's it's really wonderful. Um, one thing, just if I'm if I I have the opportunity to say to American gamers, two really interesting British or, or actually European, because one of them is one of them is French European games, which you you may have missed. One of them is a French game called Captain Blood, which is sort of a space exploration game in which you are, I think, you are dying of something as you explore space. And it's very French and very delightful. And the other one is a game called Exile, which was a BBC micro game, which was a very early physics-based platformer about exploration. And both of those, I don't think they made it to America. Or if they did, they weren't huge hits. And they are worth... I'd like to spread the word on them a little bit, if I may. (laughs) Well, especially with the Internet Archive introducing this online emulation system, a lot of old games are becoming available to play right in your browser. I don't know if those two games in particular are among the offerings but the likelihood is growing that games that we missed on in our youth are now becoming available for different platforms yeah i i feel how do you feel about this because i feel i feel very i have mixed emotions about it and one of them is obviously i'm really glad that these games are surviving and that people are playing and it's not enough for a game to survive is it it has to it actually has to find play i feel like games have to be played for them to meaningfully survive they have to have an audience but I do at the same time wish that the people who had made them were able to benefit financially from the from people playing rediscovering them. I wish there was a way that kind of they could they could get some it was great in that small period where you could put these old games in Twitter like Twitter messages and they'd run in Twitter. But at the same time, that was someone's work and it would be lovely if there was a way that they were being remunerated for the joy that they were giving you, if you know what I mean. Absolutely. There are some very obvious copyright concerns with this act of preservation, but when the alternative is abandonware, where the games are available only in a format that nobody has access oh, yeah. to, then like you said, you know, the game needs to be played. Yeah, absolutely. And there's nothing sadder than... I read a really interesting thing a couple of years ago, I think in the New Yorker, saying that our, our, our generation and our, our moment in history, we have created the most information of any moment in history before, but we're also going to lose more information. 
And already there are sort of file types that were created in the 70s and 80s, which you just can't access anymore. I remember like they were talking about this archive where they were playing some very early uh, recorded folk songs from the States and they were recorded on wire. There was like a way of recording sound that used kind of twists in wire to record the the kind of the the the, the the kind of the waves of sound and and they're practically you practically can't play them anymore because they're all of the all of the machines which played played this strange wire audio format are gone and it's very sad it is and i'm glad that there are some efforts being made to preserve this stuff although we can never exactly capture the environment and the experience that they were intended to be in no absolutely it's such a it, yeah it's it's a, it's a, a puzzle so you obviously grew up very influenced by video games. Did you see yourself growing up to work in that industry, especially as a writer as you are now? I'm one of those people who ended up in video games because I wanted to be a writer. So I always wanted to be a writer. And for me, the place to be a writer in games is to write about games rather than to write games themselves. So I never wanted to, I've never wanted to be a writer on a game. Because I think whether I'm right or wrong, it's always just struck me that that is games are not really a, a a narrative medium. I mean, they're becoming it more and more all the time, but I still feel that they're not a writer's medium. They're a designer's medium. And I just don't have a designer's brain, if that makes sense. I know I've made loads of people furious by saying that people who want to write games and that's absolutely wonderful and you should, and you'll do a wonderful job of it. But for me, I, I always wanted to, I always wanted to write about things. And I think you have that moment in your life where you really, if you are a writer, it feels like you have that moment where you realize that you don't want to do something firsthand. You want to write about people who do something firsthand, if that makes sense. And that was, that was very true for me anyway. I had that sort of stepping back from the world moment, which felt like I was finding, finding the, 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 the instinct that I should be a writer was becoming clear. And so is that what led you to found Hookshot? Oh gosh. So, um, that's jumping forward a little bit. Okay, let, let's go in order. I didn't, don't mean to jump ahead. Oh, no, 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 no. I wasn't, I wasn't like, I'm furious. <laughs> um, so, I start, so I originally wrote children's television. Um, so I wrote children's television for a number of years. And I did, I was not very good at it. And I didn't particularly enjoy it. And I don't know if you've worked in television uh, at all. But certainly in the UK, everything they say about working in television is true in that you don't really meet that many people who are nice. And it was very important to me to be around people who were nice, I discovered. So I worked in television. And then at the same time, I was rediscovering my love of games. So I loved games when I was a teenager. When I was very young, I loved games. And then when I was a teenager, I loved them. And it kind of, I think for a lot of people, it dips off a little bit when you go to university. I don't know if you can kind of relate to that, but I, I, when I was at university, I really didn't play games very much at all. And then I rediscovered them afterwards. And at that point, I was writing television, and I was thinking, God, I'd love to write about games. And there was a magazine in the UK. I don't know if you've heard of it, but it was called, it's called Edge Magazine, and it's, quite, it's, it's, it's sort of quite a famous magazine in the UK and in, and in Europe a little bit. But I started writing for that. So I wrote, I wrote that would be... I am terrible at dates, and it's not important anyway. But I wrote for Edge for about, probably about seven years, it feels like. Maybe six or seven years. Um, and then I ended up at Eurogamer. And then after that, we very, we, we, a, a bunch of us founded this thing, Hookshot. 
Edge magazine that was released in the U.S. as Next Generation, I believe. That's right. That's exactly right. Yes, no, that's the one. That's the one. And it, uh, the, the American edition had some American articles, and I think it carried some of the English articles as well. Yeah, um, and I, 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 Edge Mag was my was my true love. I loved it ever since it it came out, and to write for it was a real privilege. It felt like a real privilege, and I was just so excited. And it was that kind of job where you wake up in the morning and the first thought is, oh my goodness, I write for, I, I do this thing for a living. And that was just great. So this wasn't something you would contribute to or be a freelancer for. This was your full-time day job. No, it was, it was, I was a freelancer, but it was also my full-time day job. So I was, Edge at the time had a system where they relied on a core group of three or four freelancers, as well as their, Edge, the magazines in the UK do not have an enormous editorial staff. So uh, Edge was sort of five or six people in the office, and that included the art guy and the production editor and all of those people you need to make a magazine work. Um, and to fill it each month, because Edge was like 150 pages or something like that, they relied on a group of freelancers who they used a lot. So back then, you could freelance for one magazine, and that could be your entire job. I did like, I think by the end of it, I was doing 20 pages a month, which may not sound like much, but it's when they're all about different things. And if you're a slow writer like me, <laughs> it, ke it kept me busy. So what was Hookshot then? So Hookshot was a bunch of us. Uh, so it was, Hookshot was my friend Simon Parkin, Will Porter, uh, Keith Stewart and I. And we all wrote, we were all freelance writers in video games. And we felt that we had, I have to take you back to the time that the App Store launched. And... I can't remember. I, I I don't know how well you remember it, or if you did. You play a lot of iOS games at the time, or anything like that. Not so much. Well, so it was so the first wave of iOS games were were terrible. They were so bad, and they they were such a failure to grapple with this with this machine, which had like a an accelerometer and a touchscreen and a load of different bits and pieces, but which which was not designed as a games machine, and they were terrible. And so a lot of us kind of wrote it off very briefly. And then, um, like, overnight, people just became brilliant at making games for it. And they made some really interesting, innovative, thrilling indie games for the iPhone and for Android. And, you know, increasingly, PC indie scene was taking off. And we thought, there is a way of writing about the games that we like. And they all happen to be games that sell for less than $15, which is a totally random way of looking at it. But, like, it, managed, it allowed us to cover xbox live indie games which was so exciting when the xbox launched xbox 360 launched and you were getting a new game down the pipe every wednesday that was just so thrilling and it was we could talk about that because they all cost like like 800 microsoft points or whatever and we could talk about ios games which cost like 69 cents and we could talk about pc indie games which generally came in under under ten dollars and we felt like we could we could talk about all of these games and it would be really exciting. It would be a, just a way of drawing a, a, a line around all the things we loved. And, and it, we did it for a while. And the problem was that we were all just doing it while also doing full-time jobs. Do you know what I mean? And then I, I, uh, I had a baby. Simon had his third baby. <laughs> Will had a baby. Keith already had two children. So, like, it just it suddenly it became something we 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 couldn't devote the time that it demanded to it because it was a hobbyist pursuit. You weren't monetizing it. 
Yeah, we weren't monetizing it. And like there are there are problems. We learned a lot about business by failing with that website because we like we didn't fail in the sense that we didn't have any money. We didn't co- it didn't cost anything. We didn't spend anything to make the the website. But um what we discovered is that the kind of advertising we would have to be getting would be indie developers because you'd want indie developers advertising on your website about indie games. And that is just not, it just doesn't make sense. And also at the same time, like we, I'm a bit of a, of a, of a dinosaur because I'm, I'm a writer in a world which has really moved on to video. And so we were four writers and it just felt, it felt like we were, sort of Victorian, like one of those movies where like a bunch of Victorians get dumped in the 20th century and they make a complete disaster of it. Do you know what I mean? We felt slightly out of out of time by the end. Of it. Yeah, it can be very difficult to succeed in the indie space, not just as a game developer, but as somebody who covers indie games. I have a YouTube channel where I play indie games and I count very highly on search results for people to discover my videos, but people aren't searching for indie games. They're searching for the latest games from Konami and Capcom and EA. Yeah, it's it is weird. It is weird. I think like indie has that the the people who love indie games love them with a real wonderful intensity. But there is a much broader audience it seems who don't who who are after the AAA thing and they maybe don't like them quite as much. They don't like it quite as they don't have the same intensity for it. Like I mean, I don't think I've ever seen a game which has captured people's imaginations as much as Minecraft and the love that people have for Minecraft is so um so much more vibrant than the love that people have for something like far cry 3 even a game people really like like far cry 3 or or something like that but it's just there's such an awful minecraft a bad example because it's a massive hit but say i love spelunky and a lot of people really really love spelunky with a passion but there are always much more many orders of magnitude more people who love something like far cry 3 or assassin's creed they may not love it as much but there are just more of them it's it's a really unusual sort of situation. Right. The average love for Far Cry is lower than Spelunky, but the aggregate love is greater. So what? Uh, this is an analogy which isn't entirely fair to make, but when I worked in television, one of the weird things is there are two ways of measuring audience appreciation or, or the audience for a television program. There's There's the number of people who watch it, which would be like the Nielsen figure. And then there's something we have called AIs or the appreciation index, which is how much they like what they're watching. And so in England, the big television, the stuff which gets the big viewing figures is on Saturday night. And that's where like the millions of people tune in to watch these programs. But the audience appreciation indexes for those programs are much lower. So more people are watching it, but they're not as bothered about what they're watching. And then you'll get a show which really bombs something like arrested development which really fails in terms of getting a mass audience but the people who find it absolutely love it and i think that is that is one way of looking at the indie triple a divide i don't think it's entirely true because i think indie is becoming more mainstream all the time and people triple a is actually becoming better all the time in areas so more people actually genuinely love it but it, it feels like that's one way of looking at that that kind of dichotomy, if that makes sense. No, that's, it's very similar to social media, where there are impressions and then there's engagement. How many people are seeing your tweets versus how many people are actually clicking the links? 
oh my god you're like you're you're like a man from the future ken that is <laughs> that's the way i should be thinking and i'm incapable of getting my head around it but as soon as you said it you're like that um you're exactly right that's a much better way of putting it <laughs> welcome to web 2.0 honestly who watches television anymore i know i know all of my all of my things all of my examples are like oh yes and when i ride into town on my penny farthing or something like that really like living in the past i'm going to talk about like you know getting my top hat repaired or something next i just i'm a man out of the 19th century it seems and it doesn't phase you that we're having this conversation across an ocean on skype <laughs> no i'm assuming that sort of um alexander graham bell is involved in some capacity so. or, or harry potter magic you know <laughs> So while you were doing all those things, in 2008, you started writing for Eurogamer, which you have now aggregated a portfolio of nearly 800 articles, but you didn't officially join the staff until 2012. So those first four years you were writing for Eurogamer, you were just a contributor, a freelancer, a community member? I was just a freelancer. So it was my job at the time was freelancing, just writing about video games for whoever would would have me. And... As it happens, I mean, this is a story. I won't go too much into this because this is a story about the ins and outs of English video game publishing. But it turns out that Eurogamer and Edge used a lot of the same people. And what happened was someone, a fellow freelancer, a friend of mine, Ollie Welsh, was hired by Eurogamer full time to write about MMOs, which were at the time we just thought were going to be this this pillar of gaming. You know, that there would be a new MMO out every year and it would be incredibly successful and they would be generating all of this content. And so writing about MMOs seemed like a safe bet. They hired him to do that. And he brought along, he sort of asked me if I'd like to write for Eurogamer. And, and so it was, it was, it was, even though it's a different site, it felt like I was staying within the family a little bit. I've made it sound like the mafia now, which I suppose it kind of is, but like, um, <laughs> But yeah, I didn't have to kill anyone. But yeah, it, so I, I wrote for them. Yeah, 2008 sounds about right. To I would take your word for it. And then, yeah, in 2012, I just they offered me they offered me the job I wanted. Um, and so I thought, yeah, I will I will I will take that job. <laughs> so does that mean that is now your job and you're not freelancing elsewhere? I'm not freelancing. So I'm allowed to I'm allowed to write about things which aren't games elsewhere. So, for example, on uh, the New Statesman, which is a, a left-wing magazine in in England, I have a piece up this just today about um, multiple sclerosis, which is the other drum I'm increasingly banging. I'm allowed to write for other sites about things which aren't related to games. So, I wrote about Twin Peaks for the New Statesman and stuff like that. But if it's games, it has to be Eurogamer because that is my day job. That's my sort of desk job, my nine to five. That sounds like a pretty typical non-compete clause. Yes, yeah, definitely. So what would you say are the principles you bring to your writing? Because, you know, we've been talking a lot about ethics and games journalism in the past year. But more important than that, I just want to know, like, what do you feel defines your voice? Or what is it that you hope to accomplish with games writing other than having a lot of fun and bringing home a paycheck? (laughs) This is such a good question. This is a really, really, really good question, and I'm delighted that you've asked it, and I also don't have a neat answer to it. So when, um, when I was reading Edge, what I, del- what I loved about Edge was that it took games seriously. It was a magazine which took games seriously, and it folded them into the wider sort of, the wider culture where I believe they belong, you know, that games are extremely they're very different to books and movies and 
painting and architecture. They're totally different. And yet they belong on the same cultural level. Do you know what I mean? We, they belong, they, they, they have a richness to them, which means that we should take them seriously. You know, they are fun, but they, we, should take, we, should, we should take them seriously as art. And so that was what excited me about writing for Edge. Now I feel that games are the most human form of art. And uh, I want, this sounds terribly self-indulgent and like I'm a pompous idiot. I'm very sorry. But like, there's no way of answering this question without sounding like a pompous idiot. I try, what I find exciting about games writing is when I see games as express someone expressing the way that games are a very human artifact i think that's really thrilling i wish i could do it better myself but that's ideally what i'd like to do is that that the human element of games i think is really exciting and vital and i would love that to come across in ev- in everyone's writing more i think that's the important thing is that a good answer or is that a terrible answer i have no idea terrible i'm no that's awful you're you're, you're a terrible person christian <laughs> Well, yes, I, you see, that's, that's the internet, that's the internet response, which is great. But yeah, I mean, that's putting it in a very pompous way, but I just think I try and write about games in a way that is fun to read and I don't always succeed. And I write, I write way too long. I read a great article recently on typography and it was a, it was, it was a typographer talking to writers about how they should use typography, but it had something in it which is really useful to writers everywhere and it was just saying when you are choosing a font or when you are writing something what you have to remember is that as the writer of the article your interest in that article is boundless but your audience's interest in that in that topic is not boundless and you have to remember that and i have forgotten that far too many times i've written too many things which are six thousand words long when no one but me wants to read six thousand words on something does that make sense Absolutely. You are your first reader and you ha- you need to write something that you find engaging, but you also need to be respectful of your audience. Yes. And it has taken me a really shamefully long time to learn the last part of that. And I think I am learning it now. I'm writing something at the moment about old, very old board games. And I learned a really, I went to the British Museum the other day, you know, this huge museum in London where they have all of these like Egyptian relics and antiquities uh, for part of, researching part of this story. And I learned this amazingly cool fact, which was in the 19th century, if you went to the British Museum, you couldn't just walk in. It wasn't like museums didn't work like that in those days. You couldn't just walk in and and see whatever you wanted to see and have a day there with the family. You had to write three different letters of introduction. And then you were admitted if the letters met with their approval. And I was like, oh, this is a brilliant fact. I'm going to use this in this article. And then I suddenly thought, actually, I'd have to spend 100 words expressing that. And it's totally irrelevant, so I'm not going to do it. <laughs> so instead, I've bored you with it, Ken. So there, there you go. Wow, that's fascinating. So museums were not just tourist locations. They were research facilities intended for serious scholars. They weren't at all tourist locations. They were purely research-based. Fascinating. It, it is fascinating, but my, my, my point being, I think, a very, I, think you're, I think you're being nice to say that you find that fascinating, because I'm not sure it actually is fascinating. Well, also, I, I'm getting that fact out of context. If it was in the middle of a longer article about board games, I might, be a little, I might find it a little disruptive. I think you'd be furious. Oh, I hope you'd be furious, and you'd go, who is this idiot and wasting my time? So, yeah, increasingly, I do spend a lot of time thinking about 
the 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 I spend a lot of time thinking about the reader. I always have spent a lot of time thinking about the reader, but I spend an awful lot of time thinking about the reader now and thinking how much longer they're going to want to read my inane ramblings and trying to cut it down. So if somebody listening to this interview wants to go read your articles, we can just recommend that they ignore the first 800. <laughs> yeah, and probably the next 200 as well, because it's probably going to take me a while to learn this. So the first thousand articles were just practice. <laughs> that feels like a, almost like a, a kind of Malcolm Gladwell style, like popular science book, the thousand article rule. The first thousand articles someone writes are just like self-indulgent twaddle and you should skip them. <laughs> Somebody on my other podcast recently said that indie game developers need to make a dozen crap games before they actually get one right. Yeah, I think there's, I mean, like, you meet people who the first time they get it, the first time they make a game, they get it. Alexei Pajitnov is the absolute example of this. The first game he made was Tetris. And his entire life is a testament to the fact that the first game he made was Tetris. Do you know what I mean? It's very hard to, to, it's very hard to live with your first game being a masterpiece, I think. Have you read a book called Carter Beats the Devil, a novel by Glenn David Gold? Can't say I have. Wonderful book, really recommend it. Absolutely wonderful novel about the early, about sort of magic in the early 20th century, uh, like stage magic, not Harry Potter magic. And I went to see him give a speech, his book, and it was his debut novel. And it's so assured and it's so perfect. It's so warm and kind of human. And at his, the speech, he said, people were saying what a great first novel this was, but what they didn't realize is it was my sixth novel and the first five were so bad that no one would publish them. So I think you're. I think you are right. I think the uh, the ten indie developers making ten terrible games is probably it'd probably be good for everyone. I just added Carter beats the devil to my Goodreads list, so I'll be reading oh that. Eventually. I'd love to know when you if you do read it. I'd love to know what you make of it. Obviously, you know it won't require another podcast, but just please email me and tell me what you made of it because I love it. I absolutely love it. Maybe we can start a whole new podcast where gamers talk about books. <laughs> I would be right there. Yeah, absolutely. It'll be like some sort of a intersectional cross media examination. <laughs> yes. And then, and then we and then we can get like literary agents to play video games. <laughs> this this should happen. Uh, do, I do, do you know um, Martin Amis, the the kind of the British uh, writer, uh, quite a serious writer, sort of postmodern novelist, and he wrote a book on video games in the 1980s because he loved playing Defender and and stuff like that in the arcades. He wrote a book on video games. Uh, which is very good, but he has sort of disowned it because he, he's a bit older now and he feels it's not sufficiently serious, I think, which is a shame. Who said that writing or games need to be serious? I know. Totally agree. Totally agree. So video games have been a very important part of your life, and they continue to be so last year in March of 2014 when you got some bad news. Can you tell us about that news? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I woke up one morning and as as so many great blues songs begin, obviously. Um, and my fingers were tingling in this really unusual way. And over the next few days, increasingly odd things happened in a sort of sensory way. Um, and I ended up seeing a, a neurologist. And even though it took seven months to find it out, it became pretty clear early on that I had um, multiple sclerosis. And... <laughs> it's one of those things where you find it out and there's nothing you can do about it. So like it's so many things which happen to you in life. There is a little bit of wiggle room. Do you know what I mean? Like here's this parking ticket, but you can kind of go, Oh, but officer, like, you know, I was literally just dropping off someone at the hospital. I really don't 
I don't need this parking ticket. You know, is there any way of getting out of this? Or like, you know, can you move my grade up a mark? Because I think I really, I think the essay is better than you think it is. But when someone says, oh, yeah, you've got multiple cirrhosis, you can't really, you can't really do anything about it. Do you know what I mean? There's no negotiation. There's no negotiation. And I have had an incredible, I had an amazing, I still have an amazing neurologist who, who introduced the idea very delicately that a, a 30, I was 35 at the time, a 35 year old man. And I was, I had this thing which was never going to go away and was actually going to only get worse. But yeah, so that's, that's what happened. Do we need to, do we need to explain what multiple sclerosis is? I mean, it's, no, I got that done at the top of the show. Oh, okay. Wow, that's brilliant. Okay. Did they have to explain to you what MS was, or were you familiar with it? Uh, they did have to explain to me. That's a really, really perceptive question, actually. Yes, it was. I had a vague idea of what, vaguely what MS was. And it, it, basically, I thought, when someone said, you, have M, you, you might have multiple cirrhosis, I thought, okay, like, Jed Bartlett from the West Wing has multiple cirrhosis and Jacqueline Dupre, the cellist, has multiple cirrhosis. Or she did. She's dead. Um, but like, it is weird because when you're only touchstone, I think with most diseases, unless you're really morbid and you go to bed at night and read like a dictionary of, of illnesses, with most diseases, your touchstones are the famous people who have had them. Does that does that sound fair to you? Yeah, either the famous people or the people in your own life. Yeah, that's right. And there was no one in my own life who had it. But all of the famous people, with the exception of Jed Bartlett from the West Wing, who sadly isn't a real person, um, all of the famous people, I associated it with pretty awful kind of decline. So like Richard Pryor had it like, you know, you see Richard Pryor in a movie and he's in a wheelchair and you think, oh God, what happened to Richard Pryor? And someone says, oh, he has he has multiple cirrhosis. And in your mind, you're just thinking, oh God, I guess that's that awful thing which puts you in a wheelchair and you end up dying. So um, I did not know very much about it at all. And I had to learn. You have to become a little, a sort of a, a, a very superficial neurologist very quickly, don't you? You have to kind of learn a lot about it as quickly as you can. So you mentioned the tingling in your fingers. Did you experience optic neuritis or blindness as some people do or a loss of balance or vertigo? Um, so I have since then I have had a lot. So the way I would argue the way I would, if someone said, what's multiple cirrhosis like, I would say it's like the tasting menu of neurological illnesses. You have a little bit of everything. And so I've had, I've had tingling, which is with me, like tingling is just a permanent feature. Now I have tingly hands and fingers, uh, hands and feet. I haven't had Optic neuritis, I sort of associate with little black spots popping up, and I haven't had that. What I've had is I've had separation of the 3D image into two overlapping 2D images, which is incredibly exhausting um, because your brain is constantly fighting to put them back together again. I, I have a problem with um, how technical do you want me to get? Do you want me to get technical or not particularly technical? As technical as you like. Uh, so I have a problem with something I didn't even know about called proprioception which is, do you know about proprioception? Assume I don't. Okay, proprioception is your sixth sense, which people don't know they have. And so you have the, you know, the classic senses, sight, uh, sound, smell, you know, feel, all of these things. Proprioception is your body's awareness of where your body is in space. 
not like in spaces in swinging through the universe, but in terms of like, if you're walking down a road, you have a basic sense of where your arms and legs are. And I have started to have problems with this. And it's quite weird. Like a lot of at the early stages of MS, a lot of the things that intrude are awful and painful and very unpleasant, but some of them are just weird and kind of playful and almost like whimsical. And one of them for me is that I, I miss light switches. I reach for a light switch and I am three centimeters away from where I thought it was, or I reach for door handles and I just pass right through empty air because it's not that the door handle isn't where I thought it was. It's that I am not where I thought I, I was. And that's sort of quite charming and funny for a bit. But then, like, you start seriously hurting yourself. So uh, a couple of weeks ago, I walked into our gate, our front gate, and that was pretty painful. I was going at quite a speed because I thought I was walking, you know, you just think you're walking down the street as normal and then whack right into a gate. (laughs) And uh, those sort of accidents happen. I I drop things on the floor because I think I put them in my pocket and I haven't. But beyond that, I mean, I don't want to go on too much. I don't want to like list my symptoms too much. But beyond that, the biggest symptom, the biggest problematic symptom for me has been um, a fogginess of thought. I have very bad um, word blindness. I really struggle with words, which is terrible because I'm a writer. It's like a carpenter going, you know, I've got this illness and it means that I can't even look at a hammer anymore. But I struggle with words. I struggle with putting sentences together when I'm talking to people. You know what MS is like. I am, at the moment, I sound like there's nothing wrong with me. Uh, Three hours from now, I might be just slurring and not making much sense at all. Do you know what I mean? Did this make you hesitant to accept my invitation to come on the show? Not at all. So I I feel that... I'll tell you a... Let me tell you a story. I don't want to get too... uh, Downbeat. I don't think this is a downbeat story. I, over the last year, I have realized that I cannot hide my symptoms from people. My neurologist was very clear about this. He was like, you are going to need to tell the people you work with what is happening to you because they are going to notice what is happening to you. And they do. I walk funny. I, I speak in a strange way sometimes. I have a weird thing with my hand which is very hard to describe but I, I move my hand in a way that no person would ever move their hand <laughs> if they didn't have to and i was in a starbucks recently these stories always occur in starbucks and the barista behind the counter was kind of mimicking my hand gesture in a sort of way and she thought i she thought she thought i was just being a brighton hipster and that i was being charmingly idiosyncratic for the hell of it but what she was mimicking was a symptom of my degenerative neurological disease and something which I feel, a, 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 which I realized I felt a, a faint degree of shame about. And at that point, I thought, I cannot, I cannot go through my life feeling shame for what is happening to me um, because it's not shameful. It's just, it's the cards you are dealt. And at that point, I thought, regardless of what happens, I should be open about what's going on i mean i shouldn't like i don't i try i don't drop it if people are talking about like the weather or something i don't instantly try and turn the subject to my own multiple cirrhosis but I, if people ask me about it i do try and talk about it and i am shocked 
that the situation I was in, that I didn't understand what multiple sclerosis is, and I'm really interested to get your perspective on this. I didn't understand what it was. And then as soon as I learned what it was, I forgot that everyone else didn't understand what it was. And people just don't know. And so people sort of, on a bad day, when I'm very visibly, when I'm very visibly, I walk down the street and I think, oh my God, I'm really obviously a neurological patient. You know, I walk funny. I don't make a lot of sense in the things I'm saying. My hand gestures are very odd. I assume everyone knows what's going on with me, but of course they don't. And I think I want to play my part as much as I feel I have a mission in life. It is to kind of make people a little more aware of neurological illnesses, just of like the things that people are living with so that maybe they get treated a little bit better. Does that make sense? Or does that sound terribly lofty and self-indulgent? No, I absolutely understand. And that's one of the reasons why I so admired Christopher Reeve after his accident, because it could be embarrassing to be seen as the Superman who can't walk anymore. And he could have just hid away from public view, but instead he made this his cause. Granted, he, he had a very personal stake in it, but I don't think that diminishes the courage that he showed in being such a public speaker and figurehead for this issue that yeah. he experienced. And I think Michael J. Fox is, well, Michael J. Fox yes. has, always, has always been my hero anyway. He was my hero when I was seven years old and I went to see Back to the Future, which is just my favorite movie in the world. But um, when you look at how he has raised the awareness of Parkinson's, and I think it's really important to say, before Michael J. Fox came out, and it does feel like coming out, it's so funny that we use this language, come out with kind of neurological, before he became public, with his illness, Parkinson's was something that people never spoke about, and they were very frightened of it. You know, it was this strange disease which just seemed awful. And he has done so much to explain the richness of life you can continue to have if you have Parkinson's, and the hopes you have, and where the treatment is. And just to keep that disease visible and to keep those people who suffer from Parkinson's, to give them a sense that they do not have to be ashamed of their incredibly visible illness. And it really moves me. I mean, it, I, you know, I'm getting a bit, I'm getting a bit welled up here, but I think I feel that that is my own job in my own little way is to do. And I just, you know, I'm just an idiot who writes about video games, you know, like no one in the, people who read my website, I write on don't know who I am, but I feel like if there's any way I can get that message across that, you know, you, you have a neurological disease and it's not the end of your life. It's not the end of your meaningful life, I think. And here's what it means. And here's how you can be a bit nicer to these people when you see them in public. I think that seems something that's really worth doing. And like Christopher Reeves, great example of it. Michael J. Fox, another like a great example. People who just really are trailblazers for acceptance and understanding, which I, I think is incredible. But at the same time, I, I can't fault people who choose to be more personal about it, such as David oh. Lander. He was on the TV show Laverne and Shirley back in the 70s. You know, I'm so yes, yes. Yeah, he was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, and he was concerned that he would not be able to get acting gigs if the directors knew that he might have a bad day and not be able to act on set. I'm so glad, Ken, God, I'm so glad you mentioned that because you totally saved me from just saying that everyone should be out about these things. It is totally, I, I know people, when, when, you, when you announce to people that you have something like multiple cirrhosis, actually what happens next is you get lots of emails from people who tell you that they have things they have been secretly living with. And it's really, it's funny. When, when, I, when, I, 
wrote an article. I wrote an article for Eurogamer about multiple sclerosis, and I, I sort of that was when I was saying like, yeah, you know, I've written for the site for a number of years, and by the way, there's this thing which I want to tell you, which is I have multiple sclerosis. People were saying, oh god, that's really brave. You're really brave to do that, and I actually think it's, it's, it feels more brave to kind of to feel that you want to deal with it yourself and that you want to kind of, you, do you know what I mean? I think there's no right or wrong. And I, I'm in, equally inspired by people who keep these things to themselves. As long as they are happy. I think if that's their choice, I think it's, I would like to live in a world where you didn't have to worry about your job prospects. If you came out, if you, if you tell people something like this, do you know what I mean? I don't think we're there yet, but I th- hope we will be there one day. Has Eurogamer been supportive of you? Oh, incredibly. Absolutely incredibly supportive of me. And I, and I, I want to say, like, everyone, even the lady in Starbucks who made fun of me, she didn't realize she was making fun of me, and she would have been horrified if she thought she was, if she found out she was making fun of someone who was sick. Everyone has been incredibly nice about it. I think um, it 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 brings out the best in in people in a weird way i don't know if you've it, i don't know if this has always been the case or if you find this to be true yourself but for me it's it's brought out the best in in people you mentioned in your article that prior to this diagnosis you had the tendency to catastrophize or <laughs> m- make things even worse how did that play out when you got this news because for someone who takes small obstacles and makes them big i can imagine a big obstacle could seem overwhelming it's weird. It is weird. So uh, a small, yeah, it feels so alien to talk about it now because the long and the short of it is I don't do it anymore. That I don't, I don't catastrophize anymore, which is great. So the long and the short of it is I've found navigating my own everyday life a lot easier for the time being since I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. Because when you have something big to think about, from in in my case, it's given me a perspective which I was lacking before that, and so I don't think, I don't think I had like anxiety is a horrible, horrible illness and a very serious illness, and depression is a very horrible, serious illness. And these are both very serious things, which you cannot cure by simply getting something else. But I don't think I I don't think I had proper anxiety or proper depression. I think I had a lack of perspective, which is so, which is very much milder. Multiple cirrhosis has given me the amount of perspective I need to be able to navigate my own life a little more successfully. Does that make sense? I don't. We moved just before I became ill. We had we had my, we we had my daughter, and we bought an eighty-year-old house. And I don't know if you've ever lived in an eighty-year-old house, but like spoiler alert, bits of them fall down all the time, and bits of them fall off, and bits of them break. And I was becoming overwhelmed with this. I was like, it felt like I was in that Tom Hanks movie, The Money Pit. Oh, gosh, I remember that. Yeah, great movie. Until you own your own house, you realize, oh, my God, that's a horror movie. But back then it was a comedy. But like, I just couldn't deal with these things that were happening because it was all costing such money. And I'd be thinking, oh, God, well, like, what if the roof collapses and we can't afford to pay for it? And then we, the entire house falls down and then we get thrown out. And then we're penniless on the streets with a baby. And, you know, all that happened was a tile had fallen off the roof. and actually since I've had something pretty serious to think about, you know, uh, all of that has gone away. I st- I just deal with stuff now and it's weird and it's taken me, it doesn't say something very positive about me. It's taken a catastrophe to, to shake my life into order, which is strange, but I'm grateful for it in a way, you know, 
I, I'm never going to wake up in the morning and go, oh, thank God I have multiple cirrhosis. And that's never going to happen. But I am glad of the way that having something like that to deal with has made me look at my life in a slightly more sane way. Does that make sense? Absolutely. None of us wish for bad things to fall upon us or our loved ones, but when that does happen, as it almost inevitably does, we have a choice in how we respond to it, and we look for the silver lining in that cloud, and you found it. Yeah, definitely. I feel like I've become... I've become... A lot of people who are diagnosed with serious illnesses say this. I've become incredibly optimistic about everything, and it is, it is in part because I have this thing hanging over me, I think. And like Michael J. Fox has written a book about how optimistic he's become since he had Parkinson's. And it's, it is, uh, is a nice way of coping. If you can, if you, if you are lucky enough to feel that it is a really nice way of coping. And I walk out, the, walk out of the house every morning and I'm genuinely feeling pretty good about things. It, uh, some days you would say that I don't have a care in the world, which is unexpected, but I will take that. Thank you. I will, I will, I will take that to the bank. So we've been talking about multiple sclerosis and before that about video games. Let's tie it all together because the article you wrote was for Eurogamer and it talked about how video games taught you the skills you needed to cope with your diagnosis. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. Okay. So I was really worried about this article. I was really worried about how it would, how it would um, go down with people, whether they thought I was either – I either thought – I thought I was going to get it from both sides. I thought people would say – video games are fun and you're bringing all of your serious nonsense into video games and I don't want it. And I thought from the other side, I'd get people going, multiple sclerosis is really serious and you're bringing video games into it and I don't want that. But actually, um, people seem to have been really nice about it. But so what I realized was that, and I want to get this, I want to get this right. Like video games have not, have not saved me, but they have certainly primed me in a weird way for dealing with um, the things that the world can throw at you. So I don't know, have you played Spelunky much? Do you know this game? I played it a little bit. I can't say I really dived into it. Okay, well, I, I urge you to play it because it's spectacularly good. But the thing about Spelunky is Spelunky is a platforming game. So it's like Mario. But unlike Mario, no one has designed the course. The computer randomizes. It doesn't randomize. It scrambles the course each time you play it which means that you are constantly being thrown up against things that you did not expect and that you cannot prepare for. And the game, over time, makes you realize that this is tremendous fun, that what's fun in this game is the dynamic cruelty of the world. And it made me realize that in multiple cirrhosis, you, like, that I have relapsing remitting multiple cirrhosis, which means that things crop up and then they go away again. But they might be entirely new. So like one day I woke up in the morning and I couldn't, I, I had double vision and I had five days of double vision and then it went away. And then another time I woke up and I couldn't speak properly and I had like two weeks of not being able to speak properly and then it went away. And uh, I had this thing called Lermit sign, which is when you bend your head forward, you get this crazy electric blast down your back. And that I had that for a month and then it went away. And I suddenly realized, oh, this is a bit like Spelunky, you know, not to trivialize uh what people suffer but in my case i was like this was a really useful way of looking at it like i play this game where weird things happen to you and you have to deal with it and now in the real world weird things are happening to me so i guess i'd better just deal with it 
and it has made it a little bit easier. Yeah, I, I think that's the way I would put it. But a video game you can turn off, you can walk away from it. Yes, I mean that's the problem. <laughs> that that is the gaping flaw with this analogy. But actually, what I've discovered is that doesn't matter that much. Spelunky has such integrity to it that when you that you see the run out, no matter how bad it goes. And oh yes, you know there's going to be another run. You you know you're going to have another go the next time you load it up. There's a there's you know when you when you die there's a restart and there definitely doesn't appear to be one of those in in life as far as we know, but it's enough. It's close enough for me to feel that there was something there was a parallel that was helpful to me, and I really do think that Spelunky and XCOM, the two games I talk about, they're all about failing. They're not about winning and they're not about getting the princess and they're not about becoming the king and being amazing. And, you know, gathering amazing loot and living in a big castle or being rich and famous. They're all about how do you deal with a world which is going wrong around you? And they gave me a certain degree of kind of optimistic stoicism for when my own world started to go wrong around me. And I know that sounds really trite, but it is true. It did help. They really helped. I was like, I just need to get into that mindset that these games create. And I need to live it. The important thing about video games, and this is true for every video game, I think, is that the way to play them is to live in, in the moment. In them. Video games are telling you, even if it's something like Sid Meier's Civilization, which you're planning for the future, it's still about what you're doing right now. It's about the choice you have at the moment about, you know, the, which, 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 which country you're currently at war with. And in Spelunky, it's what do I do to get around this snake that's right in front of me? In XCOM, it's how do I get through this mission which has gone really badly wrong? And in every game you think of, it's there's there's a little of the moment scenario, and that has been how I've got how I've dealt with multiple sclerosis. Is I absolutely live in the moment because you know what this is like. You so anyone who's had multiple sclerosis in their family, one day you get a twinge in your leg, and you think, well, that could be my leg shutting down for the rest of my life, or it could just be a twinge in my leg. So let's just wait and see and see which one it is. And that's the only way you can get through this weird, crazy disease. And, uh, and in a way, I learned it from, I did learn a little bit of it from video games. It was interesting, the article, how you talked about how many games nowadays are more about moving you through a story and showing you various set pieces. And there are some games in that genre that I absolutely love, especially lately, Life is Strange. Have you played that? Oh, I love Life is Strange. Isn't it great? Yeah, it's amazing. It's absolutely wonderful. But at the same time, Life is Strange is not a game that you can lose at. You can make better or worse decisions, and people may die or not die. But in the end, you get from point A to point B. Yes, absolutely. So, And it does deal with some very serious issues. And I, that's what I love about narrative-based games, that just like how it's been shown that people who read novels and fiction tend to be more empathetic because they've gone through these situations vicariously mm. and are able to relate to people. And I think video games are getting to the point where they can do that too. But as far as coming to terms with your diagnosis, you find that those kinds of games have not been as helpful as Spelunky or XCOM. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's to do with this idea of modeling something. So for me, Spelunky is not a game about illness because it's a game about Indiana Jones. It's like an explorer and he has like a whip and he has bombs and he's exploring these tombs and boulders are chasing after you and all of these things. But for me, I found that it was modeling the reality of illness really clearly in a way that a narrative game, which is about being sick, might not do that. 
So in in Life is Strange, let's say they do season two of Life is Strange and the main character is ill. Chances are they would not be able to within the narrative, they would be able to shed a light on what it is like to have that illness. But they would not be able to get at the moment to moment living on the brink of disaster that illness gives you as much as Spelunky did. Do you know what I mean? So Spelunk, like, here's the way I put it. Uh, gosh, what's the game? Far Cry 2. Yeah, Far Cry 2 has malaria. You, you have malaria in it. But what all this means is that every now and then you need to go on a side mission and get some pills. So really, it's not modeling malaria in any meaningful way. Spelunky, however, so that it's dealing, it's dealing with malaria in a narrative way. Spelunky is dealing with things that feel like illness in a design way. It's dealing with adversity, randomized adversity, in a way that I recognize as an MS patient. And it deals with it in a way which is right in the design of the game. So it's in the language of the game from one moment to the next. And that is why that game... If you asked Derek Yu, who made Spelunky, oh, were you thinking about illness when you made this game? I guarantee you he would say, no, I wasn't. But yet, he's made something which speaks to illness so eloquently. And I think, I think that's wonderful. Just like you have found with XCOM. Yeah, XCOM, XCOM I think, is really... X, have you played XCOM much? I actually haven't played it at all. Oh, it's a wonderful game. XCOM's wonderful. I, I urge you, when you're in between reading Cart Beats the Devil, re- play a bit of XCOM. XCOM is this game about losing. It's all about you are completely outmatched by the enemy and you don't have enough resources and you have to play really intelligently and even then luck is involved. And it's a game about managing decline. It's a game about managing your own decline. And in that way, it absolutely speaks to me because the sad truth of the matter is like when you have MS, you are, even if it's going very well, you are to a certain extent managing decline, or at least you're aware of your own decline in a way that you aren't before, before I had, do you know what I mean? I think I've always been aware that I'm getting older and that I'm getting more forgetful and stuff like that. But now I really feel like I'm managing this thing, which is a little bit collapsing around me. And XCOM was very useful for that. I was, again, you could go, Oh my God, this is a bit like XCOM and I like XCOM. So maybe I'm going to like this. (laughs) But for those listening to this podcast, hearing that, XCOM models MS in the sense that everything is going wrong around you and you're dealing with failure. That can be very discouraging, whereas you've actually found it encouraging. I think I, I think the difference is both of these games I liked before I got sick. And for me, it comes down to the fact that, that when you... The victories really matter when they are incredibly hard to get. So like um, in Splunky, if I have a really good run and I get through quite a lot of the dungeon i feel i'm on such a high for the rest of the day because normally i don't get anywhere in it whereas in something like i think the example i used in the article was um uncharted uncharted there is no question that you are going to win that game because the game has been designed so that you you have to win it because they want you to see all of the clever set pieces they've put into it they've spent all this money on XCOM is not like that your cert- your your victory is not guaranteed and therefore the little victories along the way mean a lot and I think, come back to another example, Michael J. Fox has written very eloquently about the effort it takes him as a Parkinson's patient to get his shoes on in the morning. But every day in the morning, once he gets his shoes on, he is the happiest man in New York for five minutes because here's this incredibly difficult thing and he's done it. 
And XCOM and Spelunky feel a little bit like that. Do you know what I mean? Right, just like you were saying earlier about catastrophizing, it's all about putting things in perspective. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, you know, I think I have a feeling I come across as one of those annoyingly chirpy people who's like, yeah, this thing happened and I feel I feel all right about it. But it's actually, for the time being, touch wood, it's, it's true. You know, I, um, it, it feel, I, Oliver Sacks, the neurologist, said one of the weird things about neurology, about his patients, is that they reach out to life even at the time when, they, when you think they would be turning away from life. He said, like, illness represents a contraction, but it doesn't have to be that way. And he felt that patients, his patients were reaching out to life sometimes, with, not just despite their illnesses, but with their illnesses' aid, in a way. And I feel that's happening for me. I feel, I feel that being ill at the time in my life when I'm ill has given me a part of the world back that I had lost a little bit. Obviously, again, MS is horrible, and I hate it. but an aspect of it has given me an awareness of my own mortality, my own physical reality, which I would not have had without it. And I, I am, I'm thankful for that at least, if that makes sense. The ability to relate Spelunky to what you're going through, has that made video games less a form of escapism for you than they were before? No, no, um, no. And I think part of this is that I have a a 22 month old daughter and we don't play video games around her because we are busy playing, like engage, like playing with her or talking to her or, you know, telling her she can't watch Frozen again or something like that. And video games become a, a crucial form of escapism. So that when I have twenty minutes in the morning, I get to work, and for tw- I get to work twenty minutes early, and I play Spelunky, and that is my moment in the day of escape. So even though I am in a way engaging with my own illness when i play spelunky that's on a very private level it is still this incredible games are still this wonderful place where i go to get away from the rest of the world so it's not just that video games preemptively gave you the skills and context you need to deal with this diagnosis they continue to serve a role in helping you with what you're dealing with oh yeah absolutely and i think even if i wasn't sick they would can still they would they would continue to say serve a, a role in my my wife loves Grand Theft Auto. And when over the last few months she's been playing through GTA five and it has given her so much. There's nothing wrong with my wife. She's physically absolutely uh, perfect, <laughs> but um, it has given her so much. It's been so additive to her world. Do you know what I mean? Emotionally and culturally just playing this game. Uh, and I think that's, that's the incredible thing about games. It's the, the power of games is that they can change your moment-to-moment existence. Uh, the danger of them is exactly that as well. <laughs> like the, the, what's brilliant about games is also what's potentially frightening about games is that they are so powerful. It's almost like multiple sclerosis, how it can go both ways. It, it can affect somebody dramatically, and it can affect somebody very little at all. I've seen people like my mother, who has multiple sclerosis for 25 years now and is still ambulatory, and I've seen people diagnosed with ms in their 30s and within a few years they're in wheelchair on full-time disability yeah it's yeah i mean and i obviously we all hope we all hope that we we have your mother's uh, trajectory yeah it's it's that's the unpredictability you're dealing with isn't it that's the kind of that's that's the thing 
that Spelunky is kind of helping in a little way with because you know there is that is hanging over my head a little bit you know like this could go well or it could go badly and you know you talk to I talk to my neurologists and they they do tell me you know it's too early to say in your case which which way it's going to go but yeah that's that's just the reality of the that's the reality of dealing with it is it's uh chimerical it's a very kind of um yeah it's it you it's just very unpredictable disease and yeah and, and games certainly have that element of them you're very fortunate to have a family to support you what about outside external groups for example here in the states we have the national multiple sclerosis society and i've volunteered extensively with the greater new england chapter even to the point of hosting a weekly podcast for them. Is there a sort of an MS organization in your neck of the world? There are, but like, so um, I, th- this is one thing I wanted to get across in this article is I didn't, I really didn't want to say I've had, I have MS and the only thing which has helped is games because that's not true. The, the things which have helped me are my family who have been incredibly understanding and supportive, particularly my wife, who's just amazing uh, with me. And and also the National Health Service. So in the UK, you know, I have uh, I have a neurologist who is just the most wonderful neurologist. I'm a little bit in love with him. I think a lot of people, when they're diagnosed, they sort of fall in love in a weird way with the person who diagnosed them. But he's truly extraordinary, um, and he's been extraordinarily helpful. I have an MS nurse as well who I see fairly regularly, and she's just incredible. And there is the MS Society in the UK is just the most wonderful charity. And when I've had um, when I've had moments where I've had to make a decision, so like now, well, I mean, when when your mother was diagnosed twenty five years ago, there were no treatment options. Now there are ten, um, but they all have different strengths and weaknesses, and it's quite a hard decision to make. And I, the MS Society was very, very helpful to me. They were incredible, as were as were my neurologists and people like that. So, yeah, there, there, there's a lot of support for for you out there. If I may ask, and you're welcome to tell me this is too personal, which treatment did you opt for? Um, okay, I will, I will tell you this. Um, I, tr- uh, I opted for. In this country, it's called Tecfidera, and in America, it's called BG12. Um, and it's dime. I'm going to mispronounce it, but it's dimethylfulminate. It is, um, it's a pill. You take it twice a day and, um, touch wood. It, it's been great for me. Uh, like, but like equally, if you were listening to this and you have MS and you are trying to make up your mind about what, what, to, uh, what to take, make up your own mind, you know, do your research and, and come up with something you're happy with. You know, I I would never, ever tell anyone, I took this and you should take it as well. All I would ever say is I've taken this and it's working well for me and I'm happy with it. This is one of the very new drugs because, as you said, you're taking it orally, which those are just approved in the last three years or so. That's right. This was approved two years ago. Um, It became became available on the NHS, uh, the National Health Service in the UK. It became available, I think, last November. And I've been on it since January. Um, there are two. There, I mean, we're getting onto territory. I don't know whether I should talk about, but there, I, w- I will talk very briefly about it. There are two drugs at the moment which seem to be amazing, which seem to be um, quantum leaps forward. One of them is Tysabri, which is an infusion um, which has an incredible success rate. I mean, it really it seems to stop uh, relapses 
in a lot of patients, it stops them stone cold in their tracks for as long as you're on it. Um, and then the other one is BG12, which I'm on, which is not quite as effective. But there were other reasons I wanted I wanted to take this rather than Tysabri. Yeah, I've heard of Tysabri, and my mother is on Betaseron, which requires every other day injections, which for decades was the way that you administer your multiple sclerosis medication was through yeah. syringes. And so these oral medications are such a boon to people who are so tired of stabbing themselves every yes. day. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, weirdly enough, I think President Bartlett from the West Wing is on is on the same drug as your mother. And yeah, it's it's awful. It's awful. And like, it's just, it's, we, I, I, one thing I do think about all the time is I appreciate that I was very lucky to be diagnosed at this point in history. I mean, what would be really lucky is if I was diagnosed 10 years into the future. But uh, I feel incredibly lucky to be diagnosed at a point in history where they go okay we have a bunch of treatment options and we can put you on them immediately and that is such a, a gift and a, uh and I, I i my heart goes out to people who have not been in that situation 25 years ago my mom got the same news you did except instead of here are a bunch of treatments which one do you want her choices were here's one treatment and there's a line yeah absolutely Absolutely. This is like, this is like, like, uh, the medical community just absolutely blows my mind with their commitment. I have had nothing but good, good experiences and their commitment to their patients has been, in my case, it's been extraordinary. You really feel these people are just going out of their way to help. And, and yeah, and I, I'm, I feel very lucky. Well, Christian, it's been wonderful chatting with you about video games, about MS. We've covered so much ground. Were there any aspects of either of these fields or how they interact that we didn't get to chat about? No, I don't, I don't think so. It's been really lovely. It's been really lovely for me as well. So thank you very much. And, and I appreciate I do go on. That is an MS thing. Is <laughs> I, I have started rambling a lot more since I was diagnosed. That's my story, and I'm sticking with it. You never did this before. Do feel free to just chop everything I've said to ribbons. No, I mean, one of the reasons why this episode of Polygamer runs a little bit longer than usual is because this topic hits so close to home for me, and I'm just riveted to hear what it's like from, I mean, most of the people I know who have MS are women because it affects predominantly women. Yeah, that's right. And so I have participated in fundraisers and the like for people with MS, and I've met a lot of women with MS, but to speak with somebody who is my age. It sounds like you're 37. I am 30. I'm newly 37. Yes. Congratulations. I'm newly 36. <laughs> uh, so to hear to, from somebody who is a gamer, which I can relate to somebody who's my age, a guy, and yet on the other side of the world, almost, it's yeah. just, there's so much about it. That's so familiar and yet so foreign. And I hope that this is one thing I would like to say. I hope I, I hope my message is, is like as much as I have a message. Sorry, I sound like a politician. I hope what I'm saying it, people feel positive, take something positive away from this. Cause I feel like the message is very much that life goes on and is still, is still wonderful. You know, life can be, can be great in, in situations which you wouldn't necessarily choose to end up in, but it's just not the end of the world. So I'm very, I'm very grateful. And I'm grateful for you for giving me an hour and a half of your time. Thank you, sir. Thank you so much. It's been absolutely wonderful. I really appreciate it. And I've loved, I've loved talking to you. So thank you very much. This has been Polygamer, a GameBits production. Find more episodes, read our blog, or send feedback at polygamer.net.
So you got the list of questions I sent you? I did, yes. Uh, do, do I need it in front of me? Because I, I can find it again. No, I don't think so. I have them in front of me. That was more just to make sure, I mean, especially in this Gamergate era, I don't want people to know that I'm not going to ambush them about anything. <laughs> I, was, I was hoping that you might still ambush me about a few things, but that's fine. That's fine. No ambushing is all right. I mean, if you want, we can talk about what it's like to be a straight white male. <laughs> I'm sure we have a lot in common on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And and we are, you know, a group who doesn't have uh, their opinions expressed enough as well. Oh, I mean, we're, we're really being suppressed, you know? Marginalized, yes. Indeed, yeah. indeed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's probably, we probably don't need to touch on any of that. I, I think not.